All right, guys. Um, if you got your Bible, find the last time, Romans chapter 8. Today we're going to finish our look at Romans 8. This is our third week devoted to it, and uh, I wish we had twice as many to give to studying it, but such is the reality of trying to fit everything into semesters. Um, we've been able to, uh, even in the three weeks we're going to have, we're going to hit the high spots of this chapter. So we're going to round out it today. We're going to start in verse 18 and go through the end of the chapter, which I hope you had time to read ahead. I try to tell you the day before. I encourage you to do it. Uh, today of all days, I hope you were able to do that. We've got somewhat of a bigger chunk to cover, and I think you will get a lot more out of it if you've already thought through it yourself. But anyway, Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. Let's, um, let's read it together. I'll read aloud. You follow along, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into it. Paul writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword as it is written and he quotes psalm 44:22, for your sake we are being killed all the day long we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no and in, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for i am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word, and we ask once again that you would give us eyes to see as much of the truth in these verses as, as we are able to, uh, to see in one sitting. Would you give us minds to understand clearly what Paul is saying under your inspiration? And would you not just give us minds to understand, but then once we understand it, would you please give us hearts that would embrace what he says here, what you say here, even if it challenges some of our own preconceptions? Would you give us wills to obey and, 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 and then live out what you lead us to do here in these words? Give me the help that I need to teach. Please give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying through the Word. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, maybe you could tell as we read through this passage, there is definitely a good bit of ground to cover in, these, <laughs> in this passage. Some of the things in our passage that I just read deserve whole weeks just for that. I mean, I'm thinking, for example, Romans 8, 28 through 30. Um, my goodness, that's been, that has been historically uh, referred to often as the golden chain of salvation. Uh, and it's just, a, it's just a stunningly beautiful uh, passage. But, but not only that, but just the whole bit about the Spirit interceding for us, or the last bit about um, uh, uh, we are more than conquerors. I mean, my goodness, we could spend weeks and weeks in just these. Um, but our task is to see as much as we can of it in the next few minutes. So if you're taking notes, here is how I want it to lay it out and, and, and think through it together. The passage pretty well divides itself up pretty clearly. And that's how, obviously, the, the we always want the passage to determine what we say about it. So let God teach us. Um, so our first point is going to be verses 18 through 25. And uh, I'm going to summarize that in this way. Call it the course of creation. The course of creation. C-O-U-R-S-E. Course. Because in these verses, Paul talks about suffering in this life as we follow Christ. And, but what he says about, about uh, suffering is he, he's going to help us think about suffering in a, in, a, in a Christian way. Namely, that it's not ever aimless. Our suffering is never aimless. It's, it's, uh, it, it, our suffering, they're not random, they're not pointless, but there is an intentional course uh, that history is following. And I, we're going to see why, why that's significant to our, our sufferings. That's verses 18 to 25. Then secondly, we're going to see in verses 26 through 30 what, what I'm going to call the confidence of the creature. The confidence of the creature. This is not what he says in verses 26 through 30. is not unrelated to what he um, said in those first verses, but it's in verses 26, it's Paul, verse 26 to 30, it's Paul building on those, on 18 to 25, to lay a stronger foundation for the hope that he introduced at, in verses 24 and 25. So the confidence of the creature, verses 26 through 30, and then finally, verses 31 to 39, conquerors in Christ. This is Paul's famous crescendo and, 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 and conclusion where he reminds us uh, uh, there 
uh, in verse 37 that we, in Christ, we are super conquerors. That's, it's, uh, it, we, it's translated as more than conquerors, but it's a single word that he uses. Um, super conquerors, no matter what we encounter in this life. So that being said, let's dive in and take a closer look to what we find in this passage, thinking first about the course of creation. Now, as we're, we're this deep into the, into the letter to the Romans, so hopefully this is, this is old hat to you by now, but you, you'll, you're going to notice when you come to verse 18 that as is nearly constant in the letters of Paul, uh, who, Paul, who was such a careful uh, writer, a careful reasoner, uh, it's not surprising when we come to verse 18, he begins that verse with a conjunction. For. F-O-R. Or meaning because. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, dot, dot, dot. Which hopefully you know by now that when he says for, he's saying that, that just means that what he's saying in this verse is related to what he just finished saying. Like he's elaborating more now on what he just said. He's explaining and giving some sort of basis for what he just said. Which means to understand the, the argument that Paul is going to make here beginning in verse 18, we need to be reminded of what he just finished saying. Okay? You might have noticed when we read 18 to 25, maybe if you were thinking carefully about what he had just said, you would see that there's more than one connection in our passage to the passage we looked at last week. For example, notice that in verses 14 to 16, remember Paul talked about our adoption in Christ as sons of God or as children of God. And you see those same themes come up again in our passage today. Verse 19, he talks about the sons of God at the end of verse 19. He talks about at the end of verse 21, he, he mentions the phrase children of God again. And in verse 23, adoption as sons. So that, that whole theme comes up again in our passage today, just like it was last week. But the most immediate connection for how Paul begins verse 18 is what he just said in verse 17. Okay, And notice, look, look back again at verse 17 and try to track with me carefully here. He says in verse 17, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And in this phrase, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. And I believe it's that last phrase right after the, right after the, 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 the comma, the, the provided, everything after the word provided, provided we suffer with him in order that we may, may also be glorified with Him. I believe it's that phrase that provides the framework for two-thirds of our passage today. What I mean by that is this. When he said in verse 17, provided we suffer with Him, that he expands on that in verses 18 to 25, our suffering with Him. And then when he said in verse 17, that we may also be glorified with Him, that's expanded on in verses 26 through 30. That begins, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses and ends with all those He justified, He also glorified. Right? So even though we're breaking verses 18 to 30 up into two different points, you can kind of see that this whole section is, is, is an unpacking more of what He said in verse 17. Um, about our suffering with Christ, verses 18 to 25, and our being glorified in Him, verses 26 through 30. That being said, our, our focus here is on what he says in verses 18 to 25, elaborating on our suffering 
with Christ. He begins verse, uh, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time. And since he is centering this whole opening section on these sufferings, we probably need to good, get a good handle on what he's talking about when he mentions the sufferings of this present time. When he says, of this present time, um, he was not talking about the literal generation, the literal decade in which he and the church in Rome were living. Uh, just hang with me here for a second. In biblical Greek, there were two different words for time. One of them is chronos, it's where we get chronology, and the other one is kairos. Um, and, and, and chronos is not the word that Paul uses here. He's not saying the sufferings of this chronological moment. He uses kairos, which means something more like age or, 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 or like atmosphere of time. <laughs> like, it's, it's like an age. It would encompass the age in which we still live today. So he's talking about the suffering of this age that they lived in that we're still living in. And he says, what are, the, but what are these sufferings that he says we're dealing with? The sufferings of this present age or time. And I think it encompasses a whole lot of things. Um, Leon Morris was uh, a New Testament scholar, and he was thinking through these sufferings that he's talking about. And here's how he framed it. I think he captures it very well. Listen carefully. He says, there is suffering that is the direct result of our sinning. And there is also suffering we endure for Christ's sake. Namely, suffering that arises directly from our Christian profession in a world that rejects Christ. But beyond that, there is suffering that arises simply because we are in this imperfect world. Paul is realistic. There is no reason to think that Christians will be free from troubles in this present life. It is important, therefore, that they learn how to bear them. That, so that word, sufferings, encompasses a lot. It encompasses consequences for my own sinful choices that are unpleasant to bear. It encompasses hardships that we encounter simply because we follow Jesus in a world that doesn't like Jesus. It, it, it includes difficulties, just the fact that we live in a broken and fallen world. Remember, if you were at church last week, and Pastor Brian, in his sermon, talked about moral evil and natural evil. I mean, just we just live in a broken, fallen place. In other words, there is no way to escape the sufferings of this present time. We are sinners, so we suffer because of that. We are followers of Christ, so we suffer because of that. We live in a sinful and broken world, so we suffer. And Paul is writing these verses to help us think about these sufferings in a Christian way so we bear up under it well and we suffer well as followers of Christ. And I'm summarizing this this point here as the course of creation. Because it, I want you to notice, as Paul is teaching us how, to, how we as Christians ought to bear up under the sufferings we encounter, no matter from which direction they come, he does it by, by pointing out to us the forward direction of all things. I want you to notice the forward direction of these verses. Paul says in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to what? The glory that is to be revealed for us. That's forward. As we suffer now, know there is glory coming. Just like in Jesus' life, 
You know, there was a cross and then there was a crown. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Notice in verse 19 that the creation waits with eager longing. Something's coming. Notice verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. It's not aimless or pointless or meaningless. There is a purpose to which, toward which all things are headed. And according to that verse, verse 20, whose purpose is behind it? God's. He subjected it, which means he is sovereign over it. But he did it in hope, which means he's good. But verse 21, the creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Verse 22, Paul uses the image of childbirth to communicate that the pain, almost like birth pangs of, of, of the sufferings of this life, is going to lead to something beautiful. Verse 23, he says that we ourselves are waiting eagerly for something coming. More on that in just a minute. And then in verses 24 and 25, he talks about a hope. He mentions in those two verses, he mentions hope five times. Six times in the whole passage that we're patiently waiting for. Now let me just say this. This is a distinctly Christian view of time. An evolutionary view of the world can talk all it wants about, about purpose or progress, but according to that worldview, there is no rational justification for what that purpose might be. Or, no rational justification for how or why this world would be progressing toward whatever that randomly selected purpose is that you think it is. In an evolutionary world, there is no purpose. And there is no progress. The Christian, though, believes and he can confidently say and rationally say that there is both purpose and can rationally say that there is progress toward it. There is both purpose and progress toward that purpose because we believe that there is an intelligent creator God who infused that purpose in it, and He's sovereign over it, so it, and therefore He is directing this world toward that appointed end. Which means that in the Christian worldview, even the suffering we endure, whether it's suffering because of our sinful choices, or sin, uh, suffering because we follow Christ, or suffering because we live in a broken world, it always has meaning and purpose. It has a good and redemptive purpose behind it. Nothing is wasted or purposeless. Even the, even the sufferings that we endure as a consequence of our own sinful choices. You say, how is that good? Well, for a believer for, to suffer because of our own sinful choices, the evidence of a believer in that instance is that because of the suffering as a result, it will result in a repentant spirit. And the suffering will produce in the true believer a greater godly resolve no longer to walk in that path that brought that kind of consequences on me. But let's think a little more from these verses about what the, that course of creation is actually leading to. What is that purpose laying ahead? Notice that in these verses, 
two different things are waiting. Okay? In verse 19, creation is waiting. And in verse 23, we are waiting. But notice that both are waiting on the same thing. In verse 19, what is creation waiting on? And not just waiting, but waiting with eager longing. What's it waiting on? It's waiting on the revealing of the sons of God. Just note that. Now, in verse 23, what, what are we ourselves waiting on? Not, and just waiting eagerly, but what? For adoption as sons. Same thing. But let's stop right here for a second, because if you've been paying careful attention to this passage in light of what we looked at last week, it might seem a little out of step at first glance. How so? Well, didn't verse 14 say, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God? And didn't verse 15 say that we have received the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father? And didn't verse 16 say, we are children of God? We have been adopted. We are sons of God. We are children of God already in Christ. So how do we square that with what we read in our passage today, just a few verses later, indicating that both we and all creation are still waiting on our adoption as sons of God? As if something hasn't happened yet. That's the tension of the whole New Testament. That in the unfolding plan of God for the salvation of His people, we live right now in a time of both already and not yet. Already and not yet. In other words, when Christ came the first time, He inaugurated things. He kicked things into motion. But they won't be completed or consummated fully and finally until he comes a second time. That's what we're seeing here. When a sinner repents and follows Christ, that person is adopted into the family of God. And God, and he has God not just as his Lord, but as his Father. That's what verses 14 to 16 taught us. That has already happened. But there is an aspect of our salvation that has not yet been revealed. Um, that both we and all creation are eagerly waiting on, with eager longing. And if you look more carefully at the end of verse 23, you can see what that is. What is that aspect that we're still waiting on? Verse 23 says, As we wait eagerly for adoption, of our, uh, adoption as sons, in this sense, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Everything will be redeemed. God doesn't just save our souls. He saves all of us, our bodies as well. And all of creation is waiting on the redemption of our bodies. That's what verse 19 says. All of creation will be set free from its bondage to decay. This broken world will be set free from its brokenness, but not before we ourselves are set free, body and soul, from our brokenness and our suffering. And when will both of those things take place? When Christ returns. We will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. 1 John 3, 2. And He will establish a new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 65, Revelation 21. That is the hope that Paul mentions six times in these verses. But you'll notice 
that his point in verses 24 and 25 is the acknowledgement that we don't yet see this purpose with our eyes yet. But we wait for it patiently by faith. Mark Seifert is is another New Testament scholar and a former professor of mine who said of verses 24 and 25, the announcement of hope does not make visible the Creator's purpose. Which is why I believe Paul goes on to elaborate further in 26 to 30 where he keeps demonstrating how we can be confident in this hope, even if we don't yet see it with our eyes. Verses 26 through 30, Paul switches his focus to the confidence of the creature. In verses 18 to 25, they were elaborating on what verse 17 talked about our suffering with Christ. These next verses, verses 26 through 30, are going to elaborate on what verse 17 talked about when it said that we may be glorified with him. Notice verse verse 26 begins with the word likewise. So he's not, in a very real sense, he isn't changing the subject. Um, He was talking about the glory that all creation was waiting on, and here he's doubling down on the glory that awaits us too who hope in Christ. And if you look carefully at these verses, it may seem like, I'm talking about 26 to 30. If you're looking at those verses right there, it may seem like Paul is grounding our confidence as believers, in two things. Two things. One of them is this, the abiding presence and help of the Holy Spirit in us. That's verses 26 and 27, the abiding presence and help of the Holy Spirit in us, verse 26 and 27. But the second thing, the second confidence that he gives us is the eternal sovereign purpose of God. That's verses 29 and 30. So you've got on the one hand, The abiding presence and help of the Holy Spirit, verses 26 and 27. And the eternal sovereign purpose of God, verses 29 and 30. And what is stuck right in between those two? Verse 28, we know that all things will work together for good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And in that way, verse 28 seems to be the controlling thought of these verses. In other words, it's as if The guiding question here is, if the promise is that all things are going to work together for my good, how can I be sure of that? How can I be sure that all things are going to work together for my good? Especially if the sufferings of this life make it so hard to be sure of or even to imagine. And to that question about how can we be confident that all the things, all things, not just all the good things, all the things, will work together for our good, the answer he begins to give to that is, the, the, is, is twofold. The first one is that we have the assuring help of the Holy Spirit. He says that again in verse 26 and 27, where he says, hey, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. How does the Spirit, according to this text, how does the Spirit help us in our weakness? He says in verse 26, that as we suffer in this life, we still don't know what to pray for as we ought. Sometimes we feel like that whatever something happens and god i don't i don't even know how to pray i don't even know what to pray and ask you for i don't i'm at a loss god um but not always sometimes something happens and you think i know exactly what i need to pray for it seems clear to me i'm going to pray for this and even when we are that way this verse says you don't you don't. 
We don't, we don't know what, we, what to pray for as we ought. And what is left unsaid here is that if God gave us everything we asked for and withheld everything we didn't ask for, that would stink. Like, that, I wouldn't have any grounds for confidence that I'm going to make it to the end of this life if that were the case. But that's not our reality. Paul says here that even as we're praying and praying, praying, praying for things we don't, I'm glad he says, you didn't need to pray that, and he just does that with it. Even as we're doing that, the Holy Spirit is praying and interceding too for us. And notice what it says at the end of verse 27, that the Spirit always prays according to the will of God. Because the Holy Spirit is God, and he knows his own mind. He knows his own will. In other words, whatever the Spirit prays for us, will always, in every case, come to pass. Because it is the will of God for us. And while we're here, go ahead and look down at verse 34, where we're told that Christ Jesus is also interceding for us. That's something that Hebrews 7.25 tells us. We will be saved to the uttermost because Christ always lives to make intercession for us. So you've got Christ and the Holy Spirit both interceding for you. Christ is interceding, His accomplishment on our behalf, and the Holy Spirit is interceding, the application of those benefits to you. And it is for that reason, the first reason, that Paul says in verse 28, we know, we know that everything will work together for our good because both Christ and the Holy Spirit are interceding for us to bring God's purpose to pass in our life, which is his second level of confidence. What is God's purpose, God's eternal sovereign purpose for us? That's the second answer he gives to the question about how can we be confident that all things will work together for our good. The first answer is that Christ and the Holy Spirit are interceding for us to bring God's purpose to pass in our lives. And the second answer will be what that purpose of God for us actually is. And he lays out his answer in verses 29 and 30. In, like I said earlier, what some theologians in, in church history have called the golden chain of salvation. In other words, this purpose of God from which we should derive all our confidence is his, his eternal purpose for us in Christ. He begins in verse 29 saying, those whom he foreknew. Foreknew, which, which has to do with his setting his love on you. When it says those whom he foreknew, it's, it's not, at that, that word foreknow does not mean that he knew something about you ahead of time as if he knew something good about you uh, and, 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 and therefore acted on that. Because Romans 3, if you remember that, showed you that there aren't any who do good. There aren't any who seek after God. So when Paul says, for new, for those whom he foreknew, he means it like we see in, for example, Amos chapter 3 verse 2 
where God said, in Amos 3.2, God says to Israel, you only have I known out of all the families on the earth. God is not saying, I am completely unaware of all the other nations on earth. You're the only ones I'm aware of. No. He's saying, out of all of the other nations, I have known you in the sense I have set my covenant love on you. So those whom he foreknew means those on whom he set his covenant love and commitment before the foundation of the world. What does it say he did to all those whom he foreknew? Verse 29 continues saying, those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Meaning he decreed in eternity past to save them from their sins. That's why he, it's, it's, it says in verse 29, he predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. And lest we automatically assume that means only a few people. Paul adds at the end of verse 29, in order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Many brothers. Like God, that's not just a New Testament thing. God told Abraham to go outside and look at the stars, see if you could count and number the stars, so shall your offspring be. Election and predestination are presented in Scripture as a means of comfort, not as a cudgel for fear and anxiety, and certainly not as a philosophical debate topic. Scripture never hesitates to say that those who follow Christ owe their salvation to the gracious love of God toward them decreed in eternity past. It just never hesitates. Paul would say it this way in Ephesians 1.4. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why is that a comfort? Because when I'm shaky, he's not. When my faith doesn't feel strong, he's not going anywhere. When I don't feel very strong to hold on to him, he's holding on to me. It's a comfort to me to know that the wheels of my salvation did not start that day at VBS when I was seven years old. That's a shaky start, by the way. But in eternity, VBS is just when it showed up in my life. And that's what he says in verse 30. That he says, because he says that those whom he foreknew and, and those whom he predestined, he also called. That's, that's, not, that's not me, the preacher, saying, y'all come to Christ. That's the call of the Holy Spirit that reaches deeper than my voice can and says, Come. That's the call of the Holy Spirit in your heart when you heard the gospel. It may not have been the first time you heard the gospel. It may have been the thousandth time. But in time, God was going to work out His saving plan in your life. You heard the call of the gospel. With it, you heard the call of God, and you repented and believed. And this verse says, verse 30 says, that for all those whom He called, He also justified, which happens when we repent and believe. 
and justified. He declares us not guilty for our sins because Jesus bore the punishment for those sins on the cross. And he declares us righteous in Christ because Jesus lived that perfect life in our place. And then we see the eternal security of our salvation in the final phrase of verse 30 when Paul says that for those whom he justified, he also glorified. Notice three things here. Three things. One, everyone who is justified is glorified. That's eternal security. Nobody falls away. Two, he also glorified. Uh, That hasn't happened yet. If this is glorified, glorified hasn't happened yet. Three, but it's written in the past tense. It didn't say he will glorify. He glorified. It's as if it has already happened. So certain is it. That's the confidence of the creature. That, 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 is, that is the creature who has been redeemed in Christ. Paul said in verse 17 that we will be heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him. And as we're suffering, it's, it's suffering in, a suffering in which the Father will not abandon us because he will bring our adoption as sons to completion. And it's a suffering in which the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ are helping us through their intercession. Verse 17 says, In order that we may be glorified with Him, which God has decreed in eternity past. Something that's still ahead of me is so sure it's written in the past tense. Will not fail to come to pass. Which is why Paul ends this chapter on such a triumphal note. Noting how believers are conquerors in Christ. Verses 31 to 39. Think about those verses quickly with me before we close. He begins in verse 31... What shall we say to these things? Good question. What are these things? With all the things that he's mentioned. I think, I think it's not just the things that he's mentioned from verses 18 to 30. It's, it's really the whole, the whole chapter beginning in verse 1 that began with, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All of that. What shall we say to it? That's actually the first of seven rhetorical questions he asks. What shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? If he didn't spare his own son, how will not he not together with him freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Will tribulation and all those other things? Seven questions. All good ones. I also believe that that symbolic number seven shows you ask any question you like. The result is still the same. What's the result? Verse 37, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The word is more literally over conquerors, super conquerors. It's it's one word. This is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used. But it seems to communicate that our victory and our assurance is so secure. It is so unshakable that it it is not... It's not adequate just to say that we're conquerors. We're like super conquerors. Hyper overcomers. Why? Because our hyper victory in all these things, according to verse 37, is through Him who loved us. He won. 
and we share in his victory. It's why that question, back in verse 32, for example, the, the, third, the third rhetorical question says, it, will be, it would be foolish to doubt that God will freely give us whatever Christ has received. Notice, notice how that question, verse 32, is worded. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Whatever Christ has been given through his victory, he will give us too. Super conquerors. The final words is, is in this is verse, verse 38 and 39. He's basically saying, no created thing will be able to separate us from the love of our creator and redeemer. Our most fearful enemies in life are still mere creatures or still mere aspects of a creation. To state, to state some of those rhetorical questions as just positive statements, no one can be successfully against us. God will graciously give us all things. No one can successfully bring a charge against us. Nobody can separate us from the love of Christ. If Christians should be able to do anything after reading and studying this chapter, it's sleep like a baby. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this beautiful chapter. Would you help us to uh, think through it together for just a few moments around our tables? Uh, perhaps as we as we think, we can think through what it teaches us about you, what it teaches us about ourselves, what it might lead us to do. Just help us to share briefly any other reflections that might come, how we, how we love you more and how we could follow you more because of what you've told us here. In Jesus' name, amen.